Back to John chapter 12. Please take out your Bibles and turn in them to John chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. This will be our second look at this important passage. We're going to focus on verses 25 and 26 today, page 899 in the Pew Bible. We are talking about discipleship. We are trying to understand what it really means to be a Christian, what it really looks like to follow Jesus. Pastor Mike just read for us from Mark 8, where we see Jesus move directly from teaching about his suffering, rejection, and death to teaching about what it means to come after him, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. We are seeing the same thing in John chapter 12. So I titled the sermon last week, The Dying Disciples of the Dying King. The one we claim to follow is the man of sorrows, as we saw in Sunday school this morning. He is the crucified king. What then should we expect the Christian life to be like? Well, we should expect it to be hard. The Christian life is hard. Discipleship is difficult. The one that we say we follow suffered and died. We should expect then following him to include suffering and death. And so our third point last week was a disciple is dependent on the death of self. I think we need to circle back to that. That's kind of high level abstract die to yourself. Okay, what does that mean? What does that look like? I don't think I explained it very well last week. Let's see if we can dig down into that to better understand this concept that Christ claims is at the very heart and soul of discipleship. Without this, there is no discipleship. Without this, you are not actually following or believing or loving Christ. And thus, ironically, having not died to self, you are dead. You have two options. You are either dead or dead to self. Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That's our focus. And I think that hates his life of John 12 is the same as the deny yourself of Mark 8. So this week I had initially titled our sermon the self-denying disciples of the self-denying king, but that's long and a mouthful. So I went with discipleship as death and denial. That's that simple. That's still pretty striking. When we think discipleship, do we think first of death and denial? That's what I want you to think of this morning. And we need to focus on this because as we saw last week, this idea is in direct opposition to the main message of our culture today. Affirm yourself, express yourself, love yourself. Jesus says, unless you deny yourself, you cannot be my disciple. And so the whole world is encouraging us and affirming us in the very thing that Christ says makes it impossible for us to be his disciple. So we need to seriously consider Christ's words of instruction and warning here. For the main message of the world and the reason the Christian life is so hard are the same. Self. Self is the main message of the world and self is our main problem. So we're going to consider the self this morning. Let's start with an illustration. We made it. We survived back-to-back wedding weekends. Pretty neat. Sam and Faith, again, welcome. Greet. Sam and Faith now a week married. That's pretty, pretty, that's pretty exciting. Um, so since Sam and Faith are here, I'm not going to pick on them. Since Joel and Beining are not here, I will pick on them. Okay. No, I was gonna say, don't tell them. Um, but marriage, wonderful, beautiful, profound mystery that refers to Christ and the church. You've been to weddings. You've been here. You know in the ceremony the highlight 
is when everybody else has entered in, all the kids have gone terribly wrong and run around and done the things awfully. Uh, those back doors close. Everybody stands. The doors are opened. And the main event, the focus, all eyes are on the beautiful, beaming bride as she makes her way to the front. And so what I love to do is I love to look not only at the bride, but also at the groom as he looks at the bride. I just hear, looking there, laser focused, face lit up. There's a little bit of awkwardness and nervousness. There's always that. Uh, but tears, smiles, his eyes, the whole of his attention physically is fixed where it should be. On his bride, his helper, his complement, his other half, his about-to-be-own flesh. There is this other, there is this superior person, there is this beautiful being, uh, and he is rightly consumed with, and he is focused on her. But, what if, what if yesterday, let's, let's go with it again, let's make fun of, let's pick on Joel and Baining. What if Baining beautifully makes her way, her entrance into this room? Everybody turns, all eyes are on her, but you peeked over, you looked back here up at Joel, and you saw his eyes fixed entirely on his phone, right? He's got the front-facing camera out. He's doing those stupid kissy face things that people do, or doing the weird hand motion things that people do for the TikTok. I like, I like to call it the TikTok to make, it, to make fun of it because it's dumb. What if, what if he's up here? consumed with and focused entirely on self. Well, we all recognize how ridiculous, how foolish, how offensive. This is not right. This is not where his focus should be. The setting, and especially the person, demands that his focus be on her, and rightly so. And thus for his focus to be on self in her presence upon her entrance into her wedding is an insult, an insult and affront. That's the picture that I want you to keep in mind as we turn to consider the self and the requirement of self-denial for the Christian life. For this silly little image, as ridiculous and offensive as it would have been, again, Joel, I was watching him, he was wonderfully fixed and excited. Again, this is all hypothetical. But this ridiculous idea is nothing compared to what each of us does always and every time we focus on the self in the presence of the Lord. Who is, by the way, the omnipresent Lord, meaning that we are always in his presence. And he is far more beautiful and glorious than either of these entering brides. And thus to neglect him and reject him and focus on and affirm self is actually the chief of sins. Which is why the denial of self is the Christian life. It is the first step of discipleship and it is the whole life of discipleship. That's what we want to consider this morning. What does it mean to be a Christian? You profess to follow Christ. Okay, what does that mean? I want to try and keep it very simple this morning, which is not my strength, but we have three simple headings. We're going to talk simply about the nature of discipleship, the cost of discipleship, but we want to close with that reward of discipleship. What is it? What does it require of us? And what is its reward for us? Are you a disciple of Jesus? A dying to self, denying of self, disciple of the dying self-denying king. Let's read our text again. John chapter 12. I'll read the whole of verses 20 through 26 again, but we're going to focus on 25 and 26 there. 
at the end. But pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If you would bow with me, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you are the omnipresent God. You are the God of all glory. You are the sun and the center. You are the one around which the whole of reality revolves, around which the whole of our lives was meant to revolve. For the very, the very nature of our sin is to deny and to reject that fact. Father, help us, please, to see what it means to follow Jesus. Father, please help us to see how self-focused we still tend to be. We pray that in these next few minutes that you would help our focus to be on you, mediated through your word. Father, help my words to be clear, help them to be true and in accordance with your word. We pray that Christ would be proclaimed in all his beauty. We pray that we would understand better what it means to love him and to follow him and how the reward that awaits us for that is so much infinitely better than anything that this life has to offer. Uh, so, Father, the task is too big for me. We ask that your spirit would work now through your word. We ask that you would show us Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen. All right, so we start with the nature of discipleship. Simply, what is it? Well, nice and simple, a disciple follows Jesus. That's what a disciple is. A disciple follows Jesus. That's our first point. It's basic, but it's important. A disciple is fundamentally a follower. Look at verse 26. We're taking this from there where Jesus says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. We read in Mark 8.34, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Right, so that, that come after and that follow me, that's discipleship language. And so in Luke's version of this, Jesus says in Luke 14, 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Right? So discipleship is coming after. Discipleship is following. That's a disciple. It is a mathetes in the Greek. Some of you are good at math. I am not good at math. But our word math comes from this same root word. Math comes from the word meaning simply that which is Learned, or in my case, that which was not really learned. Uh, but uh, the verb for to learn is where we get our uh, mathematics. And so a disciple, same root word, is then simply one who learns. That's it. A disciple is a learner, a pupil of another. You had a rabbi, a teacher, and you had disciples, learners. But they, again, they didn't have a classroom where you would come in and sit and learn only from his words. Like we see with Jesus in the Gospels throughout his ministry, Jesus is always on the move. He's always on the go. 
And his apostles are always right there with him, behind him. He's teaching them with his words, but also with his entire life. A disciple then was listening to and learning not only from the words, but also observing the life and imitating the life. Okay, so a disciple would quite literally follow his teacher around. The verb to follow is just a, a form of the word for road or way. And so it means to, to walk the same road or to walk the same way. It is quite literally to accompany someone on the way. A disciple follows Jesus. And if we stick to the teaching and living aspects of a rabbi, we can say that a disciple will believe what Jesus teaches and do what Jesus does. That's a disciple. He'll believe what Jesus teaches and he will do what Jesus does. Again, pretty basic, pretty simple. J.C. Ryle says this, faith and obedience are the leading marks of real followers. They will always be seen in true believing Christians. Their knowledge may be very small, their infirmity is very great, their grace very weak, their hope very dim, but they believe what Christ says and strive to do what Christ commands. Faith and obedience. That's what it means to follow Christ. And you know, I'm trying to strike a balance here. We want to be careful to in no way imply that we are saved by following Jesus. Right? Again, I'll be clear from the beginning. We do not follow to be saved. I want to make sure your takeaway from this sermon is not, I better follow Jesus better so that I can be saved. No. Our first point uh, last week, the first two points, where a disciple desires the king and a disciple is dependent on the death of the king. It is verse 24 in our text that makes a disciple. It is the fruit-bearing death of Jesus that makes a disciple. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God. But God made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Ephesians 2. So it's the gracious, life-giving death of Christ that makes us disciples. That gives us new hearts and minds with a new desire for this king. So it's his death and the desire for him that the spirit awakens in us that then makes us disciples. So, be clear. Disciples are made only by the grace of God. We're not saved by our following. But, once saved, disciples will very much follow Jesus in faith and obedience. Ryle's words are helpful as he makes it clear that these marks will always be seen in a true Christian. Though we may have little knowledge and much weakness, by the grace of God, we will believe and strive to obey, however imperfectly. That's what it means to be a disciple. And so, if that's not there, if there's no evidence of living faith and growing obedience, well, okay, there's just no reason to believe that one is to be a disciple. If you remove the things that make a disciple, then you don't have a disciple. That that one is not saved at all. So the solution is not to try harder and do better. The solution is to repent and believe. To receive the forgiveness of God offered freely in Christ. A disciple follows Jesus. Again, it's simple. There should be nothing controversial about this. So it's good to be always examining ourselves. Do I believe what Jesus says is true? Do I do what Jesus says to do? Yeah, not perfectly. We know that. These are also then great tests to hold up to the world and others who claim Christ or profess to speak for Christ. Do they generally believe and agree with what Jesus says is true? You can know someone 
is not actually following Jesus if they are constantly calling into question his teaching, tweaking his teaching, or teaching contrary to his teaching. And I've shared before about the, 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 the sermon I was listening to where the person was going out of the way to explain that the cross was not a substitutionary death in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. Right? You can know that that person is not a disciple of Jesus by denying the very fundamental thing that Jesus is. Right? So do they believe what Jesus teaches? And do they generally do what Jesus says to do? Striving to be obedient to his good and clear law. Are they somewhat characterized by humility and the other fruit of the Spirit? Are they like Jesus? That's the basic idea. A disciple is like his master teacher. He listens to what he says, and he does what he does. A disciple follows Jesus. So, if you are not following Christ, seeking to listen to what he says, striving by grace to do what he does, you just don't have any reason to think that you are a disciple. Listen to him. Obey him. Application. Here's our application for our first point. I've mentioned in a couple of emails recently that I, I want to get back to sending out a regular Woodside Weekly update. Or maybe Woodside Weekly Word, because three W's, come on, it's good alliteration. Well, I want to send out the first one this coming week, and I want to try a new iteration of the email that Mike and I have been talking about and, and scheming on, hopefully slimmed down, and by that I mean shorter and a more effective version. We saw last week that a disciple desires the king. The language of verse 21 is that Greeks desire to see Jesus. Do we desire to see Jesus? And if we do, the next question is, how do we, 2,000 years after his ascension, see Jesus? It's, it's the word, of course. The word is the only way that we see Jesus. That is why Mike and I hope to help better facilitate that with these emails. Sir, we would see Jesus. We sing, show us Christ. We see him only in the word. So a disciple listens to Jesus. We hear him only in the word. And so we need to figure out as a church how to more regularly and intentionally engage with that living and active word together as a church family. I'm sure you've heard the statistic before that 90% of statistics are entirely made up. Right? That's about like the accurate. You get the joke. Right? They're all statistic about made up statistics. Now, they're not always accurate, but they can be helpful as general guidelines sometimes. One that I was reading, one such statistic this week, claims that over 82% of American Christians only read their Bibles on Sundays in church. Right? Is your only Bible reading the reading that Mike does for you and the reading that I do for you on Sunday mornings? Again, however accurate this is, this claims that it's, only eight, it's 82% of professing Christians who only read the Word on Sundays. That would mean that only 18% of professing Christians read their Bible at least one other time in the week. How small then would be the number of Christians who actually read and engage with God's word every single day of the week? We've gotten to the point where that's like this impossible to obtain standard like, oh, seven days a week. No, <laughs> this is what it means to be a disciple. I wonder what those statistics would be like for Woodside. Again, just statistically, we know that many of you are not engaging daily with God's word. Now, remember, a disciple of Jesus listens to what Jesus says and does what Jesus does. That then is impossible. Discipleship is impossible without the word through which we hear what Jesus says and see what Jesus does. Disciples follow Jesus. Disciples now follow Jesus through his word. We want to better help facilitate that 
So we're going to try something. We want to start something with the Psalms. Uh, we need the Psalms. The church used to not meet without being in the Psalms and reading the Psalms uh, through uh, constantly and regularly. We struggle to pray. The Psalms are God-given inspired prayers that teach us how to pray. We struggle to meditate and commune with the Lord. The Psalms are God-inspired examples of meditating on and communing with the Lord as we read, in whose presence is fullness of joy. Doesn't that sound good? Don't we want fullness of joy? That's what we all want. Our problem is we just don't really believe that it's found here in the Lord. Again, the Psalms can help us. So what if we were all reading the same thing at the same time and then talking about it? And then actually encouraging and engaging one another with that word. That's what we want to try. If you already have a Bible reading plan and you are part of the 1% that reads the Bible every day, uh, praise God. What we're going to give you is just one psalm a week. We're going to encourage you to read it once, to read it once a day, to read it as much as you can. Each week, I'm going to send out an email with the psalm. I will give you a few thoughts and questions about it, less than 500 words. I want you to take it, cut it, paste it into Word, check my word count, and hold me accountable. 500 words or less. And then I want to encourage you to use that and to read the psalm and to spend some time thinking about it. And then here's your one assignment. We want to encourage you to to engage with one other person that week with that week's psalm. Tell someone something that you learned, something that you've been blessed by. Ask someone some question that you have. Ask them what they're learning from the psalm, what they find challenging in that psalm, maybe how they've been blessed by that psalm. What if we were personally more engaging with the things of God through the word of God and then more intentionally, corporately engaging one another with the things of God through the word of God? Yeah, let's try it. We have all kinds of silly ideas that don't work out, but we're going to try that. Uh, We're going to try to then work the psalm into the sermon. We'll try to work it into the message or it'll be the reading uh, for that week. As we are together then engaging with God's word, thinking about it, reading about it, talking to one another about it. So so look for that email this week. I'm working on it. If you're not on the email list, let me know or let VJ know and we'd be happy to put um, put you on that list. And we'll send out nice and short, here's an encouragement to read and engage with God's word. The point is, There is no discipleship apart from the word. It's just not. Disciples, listen to Jesus and do what Jesus does. That only happens through the word. Are you listening to the Lord that you claim to love and follow? Let's let's seek to do that better together this fall and pray for that. Let's read and talk together about the word together. So more of that to come this coming week. So that's the nature of discipleship. Let's, Let's get back to our text. Nice and simple. Disciples follow Jesus. Now we get to the hard stuff. Point number two. Let's get to the cost of discipleship. Look at verse 25 again. Let me read it for you. John 12, verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That's the cost of discipleship. A disciple hates his life. <laughs> Those are Jesus' exact words. Yeah, we don't love that hate word. Okay, Mark 8 again. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself 
and take up his cross. So to hate is to deny is to die. Again, I think these are all largely synonymous. Hate, deny, die. Jesus is saying the same thing. Do you hate your life? And what in the world does that mean? Isn't hate a bit too harsh of a way to put it? Now, part of me doesn't even want to qualify this. I don't even want to like lessen the difficulty of it. But I will because we want to be accurate. We know that Jesus is not calling us to some sort of harmful self-loathing. Right? Hate was a common idiom of comparison. We understand what Jesus means in Luke 14, 26, when he says that if we do not hate our own father or mother, we cannot be his disciple. Children, my children, other children, fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. <laughs> it's the first one of the second table. Respect them, love them, obey them. That didn't used to be strange, by the way. We go into playgrounds a lot and sitting around and watching. I am very concerned. I'm not a very good parent. Let me say that first up front. But I'm very concerned about parenting right now. Children are supposed to obey their parents. That just used to be understood. Parents, you're supposed to teach your children to obey you. You're supposed to tell them something and they do it. And when they don't, you're supposed to do something about it. Not like, ha, 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 I'm going chasing it. No. Parenting is teaching and raising your kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Parents, please love your children by teaching them to obey you. Children, love your parents by obeying them. That just, that's just what parenting is. That's God's good law. Side note, sorry, playgrounds have been very concerning to me lately. Point is, Jesus is not contradicting that good law when he tells us that we must hate our father and mother to follow him. That's not what he's saying. The way Matthew puts it in 1037 makes it clear. If anyone loves father or mother more than me, he cannot be his disciple. Comparison. Jesus is telling us that we are to love him so unreservedly, so put him before everything else, that anything else should look like hatred in comparison to our love and devotion to him, including them, our love and devotion to our very selves. That's what it means to hate your life. Remember last week, if you look at the verse again, I pointed out in the Greek, you have three verses of the three uses of the word life there in the verse. The first two uses are a different word in the Greek than the third use. The first two are the same word Jesus uses down in verse 27, when my soul is troubled. That's the same word there. And the soul is the self. So then verse 25, literally in the Greek, says whoever loves his soul slash self will lose it. And whoever hates his soul slash self will keep it eternal life. And so deny yourself, die to yourself. That is the cost of discipleship. I obviously stole the wording of this point from the title of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's famous book, The Cost of Discipleship. Bonhoeffer had some very problematic theology in some places, but much of that book is, is helpful. But the most famous line from the book is, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It's not exactly how we tend to evangelize these days or, or call people to Christ. Hey, here's your best life now. Come to Jesus. He'll help you and give you everything that you need. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Die. Deny. And still, really, what does that mean? You, know, you just want me to tell you, what does it mean? 
For a while, we were trying to teach the girls about repentance and faith as simply as possible. And so we went with, uh, to repent is to say no to sin, and faith is to say yes to God. No to sin, yes to God. I know it's not perfect. Don't be like me. Don't be obnoxiously, theologically nitpicky. But it works all right for a four-year-old. Say no to sin and say yes to God. That's not too bad here as well. To deny yourself is to say no to self. To hate your soul slash self in this world is to say no to your soul slash self in this world. The cost is your very soul. It is your very self. And why is that? Why, why is that the cost of discipleship? We've talked about it. Sin. And we've been hammering. We've been really trying to understand what sin really is. Remember, the essence of sin is substitution. We were made in God's image. We were made to represent Him. Instead, we have tried to replace Him. That's what sin is. Sin is our attempt to dethrone God and enthrone self. This is the sin. All the bad sins you look at, you're like, oh, that one's so terrible. That's, that's wickedness. No, this is the main one. This is the sin behind all sin. This is the chief of sins. Our desire to take God's place. Our desire to be God. It's the very first temptation. You will be like God. You will be God. And we've been trying to be ever since. You're never going to see your need to deny yourself if you don't see first that you're, what your sin really is. It is cosmic treason. It is your attempt to un-God God. To kill God. To be God. But it's not only the height of wickedness, but it's the height of foolishness. For it will not work. For there is only one God. There can be only one Son and center. There is only one who is infinite in power and glory, and it sure is in us. And so to act like we are, to act like we are the center, that everything should revolve around us and to go our way, our will be done is to wreck and ruin everything. Hey, do you know why you're so angry? Do you know why you get angry? God has been showing me that I'm more angry than I thought. I just did not know the depths and the layers of my anger, and he's peeling it and, and showing it, and it's terrible. Um, but he's working on it. But why do I get angry? It's, it's because I think that I'm God. Why do you get angry? Same thing. You want to be in control, and so you get angry when it's clear that you're not. You want your will to be done, and so you get angry when it's not. You want to be praised and worshipped, and so you get angry when you're not. But again, who do we think that we are? Who is the one actually in control, whose will is actually done, who deserves praise and worship? Again, it's only God, of course. My anger is evidence that I'm still tending to insist that, that I'm God and that everything should revolve around me. And so the first step to denying yourself is to stop believing that you are God and to stop living as if you are God. That's what sin is. Sin is selfishness. It is the inordinate love of and focus on the self when the thing that we should be focusing on is the God of all glory and grace. Sin is Joel staring at himself with his beautiful bride walking down the aisle. And it's foolish. And it's evil. This is why we must deny and die to self. 
for ourself has put itself in God's place. Put itself in opposition to God and nothing gets to be in God's place. Nothing can stand in opposition to God. And so the first thing it means to deny self is to deny that you are God. To remove yourself from his place or he will eventually remove you. So here's five rapid-fire self-denial duties. Here's what it means to deny yourself. That's the first one. Number one, to deny self is to deny that you are God. To deny self is to deny that you are God. Again, none of us think that we're doing this, but we are, and our anger reveals it. It is then number two. It is to deny that you are good. To deny yourself is to deny that you are good. Stop acting like you are righteous. Stop parading your virtue. Stop declaring that righteousness. Stop trying to insist that you're good enough and be good enough. Why are you doing that? Because of number three. Also, to deny yourself must then mean to deny that you are Savior. It means to deny that you are Savior. God, good, Savior. It's to recognize and realize and deny that you, cannot, that, that, that deny that you can save yourself. That you can be good enough. You, you can't. You've already rejected the perfectly good God. The fact that you can't sit in traffic without getting angry proves that you are not a good person and that I am not a good person. So our sin has already separated us from him. You cannot save yourself. And we prove that every single day. So deny that you are savior. And since it is your sin that separates, for you also must then deny that sin. To deny self is to deny your sin. There is no salvation without repentance. To say no to self is to say no to sin. It is to say no to ungodliness. God's word is clear and God's word is good. If you continue to insist on what you know is not good and what is contrary to God's law, you will die. To deny self is to deny sin. And since first one, it is deny that you are God. Number five, it is also then to deny your will. To deny your will. It is to lay aside your will, your wishes, your desire, your plan, your future, your for his. Deny yourself. That's five. I mean, that's not enough things, but there's five. Deny that you are God. Deny that you are good. Deny that you are Savior. Deny your sin. Deny your will. And there's more. Thomas Watson has a list of 15 things. I only gave you five, and mine are better, honestly. Uh, it's a joke. Thomas Watson's my favorite. But go and read Watson's The Duty of Self-Denial. He says that self-denial is the first principle of Christianity. So again, without this, you don't have Christianity. He says that self is an idol, and it's hard to sacrifice this idol. Amen. This is why. Self is why the Christian life is difficult. He says selfishness is the reigning sin of this world. And again, he said that over 300 years ago. How much is that the case today? Yeah, I just don't think we are aware of how subtle and dangerous the self is and how central the denial of the self is to the Christian life. There is no Christian life without it. I don't think we realize how prone we still are to live our lives primarily for ourselves. I've been greatly helped by John Newton's letter where he frequently refers to himself or he refers to that great monster self. Constantly says that monster self. As many heads as a hydra, as many lives as a cat. You know, a hydra, you cut off its head and it keeps coming back. Cut off its head, it keeps coming back. That's self. 
Yourself is your own worst enemy. And so again, we need to note the total contrast between the world and the word. Between the culture that you're listening to so frequently and Christ that we're only reading on Sunday mornings apparently. The world is shoving one message down your throat continually and aggressively self. And this is why social media exists. To encourage you in your pursuit of self so that they can monetize it and make money off of it. Paul warned us about this 2,000 years ago. 2 Timothy 3.2. He wants us to understand that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For verse 2, people will be... And then there's this horrifying list. Proud, arrogant, abusive, treacherous, heartless, slanderous. He also includes disobedient to parents. We are in the last days. Uh, but there's this terrible list of wickedness. The very first thing Paul says, lovers of self. He takes the verb for love and he takes the pronoun self and he shoves them together and makes up this word, self-lover. This is the first on this horrible list because this is the first and foundational sin. And it's the very message of our world. Be yourself. Treat yourself. Express yourself, assert yourself, focus on yourself, find yourself, love yourself, and live. Jesus says, love yourself and die. They're two fundamentally different messages. So the very thing that the world is pushing as life is the very thing that Christ is preaching as death. Self is your problem. It's my problem. Self-love. Self-obsession, self-focus, self-will, self-seeking, self-assertion, self-dependence, self-wisdom, self-righteousness, self-worship, self-glorification. All of that, according to Jesus, is death. All of that prevents and prohibits our seeing and coming to the one who is life. Joel can't even see his beautiful bride because his focus is on himself. We can't see the all-beautiful, all-glorious Lord because our focus is here on self. That's death. It keeps us from him. He's life. He's the, he just revealed himself as the resurrection and the life. And Christ's revelation is always also confrontation. His revealing of his self is always a challenging to our Self. And so when he reveals himself as God, he is also revealing ourselves as not God. And he is calling us to repent, to submit, to deny, to die. We all of us need to be unselfed, for the self is sin. And thus, the only way to live is to die to self. Are you aware of just how, again, prone you are to? Again, why do you post? What you post, is it for God's glory and the edification of others? Or is it for your own glory? I would, Jeremy and I have been running together, and, and Jorge and Chu, and uh, we, we all like to run. We, we ran a race a couple weeks ago, and I think someone came to me and said, oh, I heard you run, da 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 in 40-some seconds. And I said, da 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 in 30-some seconds. I immediately, immediately corrected them. Why? Glory. Give me glory. See how great I am and how fast I am. I'm not fast. I'm not fast. It's so stupid. It's stupid how foolish we are and how much we love ourselves. 
We need to be unselfed, unfocused, for the self is sin. I've shared before from one of the best parts of Calvin's Institutes, uh, book three, starting in chapter six. It's all about the Christian life. I laughed. I was going back through it this week, and I laughed. Toward the beginning, Calvin writes, by nature, I love brevity. My copy of the Institutes is over 1,500 pages, right? It's this, you're a liar, Calvin. Um, so, I, so I'm not the only one that lies when it comes to length of sermons and, and emails. I'm in good Calvin company. You're not going to read the Institutes. Begin. let me commend to you again. Uh, Susan called this yesterday this cute book. So here's, here's cute Calvin. It's cute. It's a little book. Uh, here, uh, get this book. This is 100 pages taken out of the Institutes because you're never going to read the Institutes. You should read this book. This is called A Little Book on the Christian Life. It's eight bucks on Amazon. It's five on Kindle. It's also free online and other editions. Just get it and read it. It's in this that Calvin, the greatest of theologians, argues that the sum of the Christian life is the denial of ourselves. He starts from Romans 12.1 and our duty to present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. Sacrifices die. Again, so there's the death to self. That's our spiritual worship. He then moves to 1 Corinthians 6.19, which says we are not our own. And then he writes, but we are God's. Let us therefore live for him and die for him. We are his. Let his wisdom and his will therefore rule all our actions. We are his. Let all parts of our life accordingly strive toward him as our goal. For since self-love is the pestilence, the disease that most effectively leads to our destruction, so the sole haven of salvation is to be wise in nothing and to will nothing through ourselves, but to follow the leading of our Lord alone. Let this then be your first step, that you depart from yourself. Let us forget ourselves and all that is ours. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Actually forgetting yourself? Actually free from self-obsession and self-focus? Beautiful wedding pictures of all these amazing people and you, boom, eyes to yourself. How do I look? How do I look? Nobody cares. We care. Because we care first and foremost about ourselves. What freedom. What pleasure would it be to not be so self-obsessed? Yvonne sent me a wonderful text this week about the freedom found in learning to die to self. Amen. There is freedom in forgetting. There is delight in denial. Yes, discipleship is death and denial. But the death and denial are the means and the way to life and joy. That's point number three. That's the reward of discipleship. What do you do If at this point, you find yourself potentially discouraged, unsure of how much believing and obeying is going on, unsure if you would affirm that you deny self, you you may need to repent. If you have been professing to follow Christ and living in willful, persistent, unrepentant sin, you should repent. We need to see sin for what it is. We need to hate it and we need to flee from it. If you have been looking at porn all week, if you have been sleeping with someone you're not married to, if you've been gossiping and grumbling all week, you get to recognize and acknowledge that all that is sin and that the wages of sin is death. That an insistence on persisting in sin is evidence of death, not life. And repent. Come talk to Mike. 
Come talk to me. We would love to walk through that with you. And repent knowing that we have a God faithful to forgive because of the perfect work of his son. Some of you may need to truly repent and believe for the first time. Remember, this was me. This was me in my early 20s. As God used just my willful, persistent wickedness to reveal that I was not what I thought that I was and that I had never actually known him and been born again. May today be the day. Repent and believe in the Christ who saves the worst of sinners. It's not do better. It's come to the perfect, saving, forgiving Christ. But for many of us, weak in the faith, struggling in our war against the flesh, what we need is the refreshing reminder of point number three. Yes, the Christian life is hard. Yes, the call is a demanding and difficult one. Let's never minimize Christ's clear call to deny self and take, our, take up our cross and follow him. But let's never leave it there. For there is an infinite and great reward for this costly and difficult discipleship. Look at the second part. Look at verse 26. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's consider that first part first. There are two possible ways to understand that where I am, there my servant also will be. The first way reads it in light of verse 24. Our focus last week, the basic foundational principle of life. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So life through death. But as we saw, that verse is first and foremost about Christ and his death. He's going to go on in the next passage and teach us more about this death. As we read in Mark 8, Jesus teaches on discipleship as denying self and taking up your cross right after teaching that he himself must suffer many things and be killed. This is why the king has come. This is his one mission, his one purpose. He's come to suffer and die. He's come for the cross. And so many take the where I am of verse 26 to be the cross. And the first phrase of verse 26 to then be a further promise of suffering. Christian life is hard. We follow a suffering Savior who died on a cross. What do we expect? Calvin says Christ's whole life was nothing but a sort of perpetual cross. And so we too should expect suffering. The Christian life is cross-shaped. So Christ may be further promising suffering there, which again doesn't seem like much of a reward, but... He also may be promising presence. And that's the greatest reward. If only we could see it. I come back and again, again and again to Psalm 23. I will fear no evil for you are with me. Hebrews 13, 5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Presence, promised presence. And you could argue that this is what the whole of the Bible is about. This is what all of God's promises are ultimately about. Life is relationship. True life, full life, eternal life is relationship with the Lord of life. The one that we were made for, made to be with, made to enjoy. We spoiled it with our sin. We were cast out of his presence. And the whole rest of the story is about how the holy and just yet merciful and gracious God is making a way for his sinful, rebellious people to once again be with him, to be in his presence, where there is life, fullness of joy, pleasure forevermore. 
Get the whole story of the Bible is about being returned to the presence of God. Jesus uses this where I am language twice more. In 14.3, he'll say, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. 17.24, he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me. That sounds like eternity. That sounds like glory. But don't forget, don't forget the end of verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 24, death. Again, that's our principle. Life through death, glory through suffering. The point is, maybe the promise there in 26 is both the promise of suffering and the promise of presence. For it is the nature of discipleship to follow Jesus. And Jesus is glorified through his suffering and death. But he's walked the road before us. And he promises to walk whatever road with us. And the road he walked... He walked entirely alone for us so that we would never have to walk that road. Never have to walk the road of the wrath of God. And spared from that, entirely by grace, promised an eternity of goodness and joy and pleasure and presence entirely by grace, that transforms our experience of difficult discipleship and of suffering and even of death. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. If we could just believe in eternity, we forget it every day. But it's eternity that puts the present in perspective. It's glory that puts our suffering in perspective. We would all of us right now take a punch in the face today. We would all line up to take a punch uh, from Anthony, the strongest one in here today, right now. For $100 billion tomorrow. This is not even a question. Like, line, line me up. I'm in. Minor, brief, pain. Lifetime of unimaginable wealth. It's obvious. What God is offering us is infinitely more valuable. For he is offering us his very self forever. Again, our problem is that we're still learning what it really means to find fullness of life and joy and communion with God. The reward of discipleship is the very presence of God. And the reward of discipleship is being honored by the Father himself. That, I mean, that's amazing. Well done. Good and faithful servant. I mean, can you imagine? The God deserving of all honor honoring us because by grace we have followed his beloved son. Church, if we could just desire that above all else. Isn't it good to be honored? It's good to be honored. I love being honored by my wife and by my kids. I love being honored by you all. I love being honored by Pastor Mike and Pastor Ed, by my father. We all love being honored by significant people that we look up to. This is the promise of being honored by God, the creator and sustainer of all. I want that. You know, our, our desires are far too little. Desire that. Pursue that. Pursue that by pursuing his son, by following him and being his disciple. For that is the nature of discipleship. The cost will be your very self. 
Deny yourself. Die to yourself. John 5.54 How can you believe when you receive glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Stop seeking glory anywhere else. Seek it only from God. For that is the reward of discipleship. The promise of His presence. The promise of honor from Him. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is the nature, the cost, the reward of discipleship. Are you a dying disciple of the the dying king? A self-denying disciple of the self-denying king? Have you, are you denying and dying to self? Look at him. He's so worth it. Look at who he is. Look at what he has done. Follow him. Die and live. It's life through death. It's glory through the suffering. Follow this Jesus. Bow with me and let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we need your help to follow your son. Father, for many of us this week, there has been such a tendency to look to self and to focus on self and to love self, to get upset when self is not affirmed. Father, we pray that by your grace more and more we would die to self, die to self-obsession, die to, life, die to self as the center of life. Father, that starts by seeing your glory, by seeing how good you are and how gracious you are, seeing your love revealed to us in your dying son, Jesus Christ. Father, please help us. We want to be different. We want our lives to reflect your grace and your glory. And Father, that comes as we grow in our love for you and our likeness to your son, Jesus Christ. So show us Christ. Make us like him. Father, do it through your word as we see how great he is and as we come to love him more and more. Father, we pray for this email idea. Father, we we want to read your word more. We want to engage with it together. Father, we want to be a family who fellowships and communicates regularly and cares for one another. But Father, we want to make sure that the word is at the center of all that. So we pray that you would give us wisdom as we go forward and seek to to better fellowship and, and unite ourselves around your word. Father, your son is so good. We ask that you would give us eyes to see him as such. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.